everybody. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for the schmooze. Uh, we're here today with Vivian uh, uh, Reifberg and Ralph Snyderman. Uh, we're so excited to have you both. Vivian, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Did I press it's correctly? actually Reifberg, but it's cool. Reifberg. You were taught Reifberg. <laughs> <laughs> Please forgive me. My last name is Sorani, and uh, sometimes people get it correctly, sometimes people don't. But one thing everyone could agree on is that it sounds Italian. Uh, okay, uh, let's get started. Bio first. Uh, in two minutes or less, uh, Vivian, ladies first, and then we'll go to Ralph. Give me your bio in two minutes or less. We'd love to hear it. Two minutes or less. Born in Danbury, Connecticut. Spent the first 17 years there, including five years at Camp Tevia in Brookline, New Hampshire in the summers. Uh, Harvard undergrad. Worked for four years, Harvard Business School. Uh, got married, adopted two children from St. Petersburg, Russia after a long, intense effort uh, with infertility mm. trying to have children. Uh, have spent the vast majority of my career at McKinsey and Company, where I at one point co-led our healthcare services practice and then our public sector practice and joined the faculty mm. at the Darden School of Business almost three years ago and have lived in uh, Bethesda, Maryland the last 20 plus years, uh, very active on both nonprofit boards and some for-profit company boards. Amazing, you have a very cozy looking couch behind you. Uh, looks very cozy. Yeah. yeah, my dog's sleeping and we hope it stays that way. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I guess, or if not, we'll be hearing some, some communications from them. Uh, Ralph, you're up. Okay, well, I was uh, born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. I think you're familiar with that part of the world. Uh, and I Brooklyn. Uh, uh, grew up in a uh, low uh, middle-class neighborhood. My parents were immigrants uh, from uh, the Ukraine uh, during the pogroms. So that clearly uh, was uh, an influence on me. Uh, I graduated from a small uh, liberal arts college in Eastern Shore, Maryland, Washington College. They couldn't stand being away from Brooklyn, so I went back to State University of New York Downstate Medical Center, where I got my medical degree, and then um, left Brooklyn um, to go to North Carolina. I had my internship and residency at Duke um, in internal medicine. And being uh, during the uh, Vietnam War, uh, I uh, went to the National Institutes of Health uh, as a commissioned officer and did uh, research as a physician uh, working on the understanding of how white blood cells uh, accumulate at sites of infections and uh, sites of uh, immunological reactions. From there, I went to the faculty at Duke. I was a physician scientist. Uh, working on inflammation, uh, a rheumatologist. I ran a, a clinical division of rheumatology and then for reasons I don't fully understand, left Duke and went into the biotechnology field at Genentech, an emerging recombinant DNA technology company, uh, given the job of being the head of medical research and development. Uh, stay there a number of years, a very exciting time in San Francisco, South San Francisco. When I was asked to come back to Duke as Chancellor for Health Affairs, uh, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, when I took the job and having done it for 16 years, I can't tell you exactly what it means now, 
but I was uh, in charge of the health enterprise at Duke. Uh, we founded the Duke University Health System, a fully integrated uh, healthcare delivery system. And during that time, got very interested in uh, changing the practice of medicine from being disease-oriented to be proactive and personalized. And uh, much of the time, uh, since stepping down as chancellor, I'm still on the faculty at Duke. I've been involved in the emerging field of personalized medicine. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, I really appreciate you both joining us. Here are our questions. Um, we'll start with Vivian and then go to Ralph, a few minutes each, and we'll take turns uh, as we make our way through this, uh, this podcast. Um, first one is, what are your dreams for the medical field? You mean, both spend so much time um, either via research or Vivian, you are out on the road um, working with, with healthcare companies. What are your dreams for change in the future? Um, and what worries you the most? Maybe let's start with what are your what are your dreams for sure? What do you what do you what do you want to see in the near future, uh, Vivian, and then Ralph? Um, I have a couple of dreams for healthcare. Um, one is the fact that we have a massive variability in practice that is unexplained variability. That is, we know what to do, we know what's better, uh, but we don't ensure that everyone gets what is uh, best across the board. And so one thing I would like to see is, you know, I don't consider it cookbook medicine. I consider it making sure it's the best. You would never let an airplane uh, fly without following the best things we know to do. And yet we allow uh, perhaps even encourage unexplained variability in practice. So one thing I'd like to see is the elimination of substantial unexplained variability. Uh, my second dream for healthcare is a system that um, uh, becomes uh, more affordable, uh, in, at least in the United States. Uh, we have the most expensive system without necessarily the best outcomes. Um, and certainly the best outcomes for all. And a lot of circumstances where there is real uh, differences uh, that COVID lay bare, uh, those differences in what people can get uh, and how they get it. So I'd like to see that addressed. And I think my, my final thing is a system that is focused uh, less on treatment in when you're sick and less hospital-based uh, as the solution space and far more oriented around addressing the whole of the person from birth to death and doing it in the place where they most need it, which is more and more in their home and community. Big tall order, I might add. <laughs> a tall order, but a worthy one. Ralph, same question. You know, I think the uh, capabilities underpinning uh, healthcare and, and the practice of health, I agree with Vivian, uh, are uh, unlike anything that we have seen before. The capabilities that have come about by science and technology and know-how and the convergence of various areas, uh, not only uh, biochemistry uh, and biotechnology, but information technology, 
digital technology are enabling the practice of healthcare in ways that truly can improve lives, improve health, and increase longevity and minimize disease. Take it from me. I mean, the, the potential is incredible. What is regrettable, and I think Vivian kind of touched on it, is that the actual delivery, the delivery model of care is greatly flawed. It is flawed by the fact that much of healthcare is focused on disease after it occurs rather than prevention of disease and enhancing health. It is not continuous, <clears throat> it is not equitable, uh, and it's not affordable. So my dream is that we are able to harness the power of the capability of improving health and well-being of humankind, removing the barriers, and many of them are perverse financial incentives, which virtually everybody knows what they are and what should be done, but it's very, very hard to do it because of ingrained practices, and start moving to a form of healthcare that truly is equitable, it improves health and well-being and makes it easier uh, for people to receive care that could improve their lives. I think that's all within our reach. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I'm here and I'm sure the reason Vivian is here is that we are believers that these kind of changes can be brought about. What do you think, thank you, Ralph. What do you think, uh, Vivian and then Ralph, is holding back the medical community from advancing towards these objectives? What are the biggest challenges that you both see are currently at, on, the, on the field that are, are holding us back from, from getting to this next step? Well, um, there are many things, but one, you know, I, I always say someone's cost is someone else's profit. And the economics uh, incentives that uh, Ralph spoke about, I think are absolutely one of the key things that holds us back. We, we uh, those lot of barriers to people wanting to change that. There's been some progress uh, in terms of trying to move people towards a system that instead of rewarding uh, activity, uh, is starting to reward some elements of, of value um, and encouraging uh, the total, thinking about the total cost of care. But we're, we're quite a ways away, I think, from the fullness of it. I think the other thing, the other barrier is we have the systems today, uh, the artificial intelligence back, you know, primary care systems today that would allow people to know the right things to do, what to do, when to do them, how to do them, um, and marry that capability into practice uh, with physicians. Uh, but we still haven't fully been willing to adopt that and to say, you know, that's, that's the way we're gonna practice medicine going forward um, and, and take advantage of the insight that comes from data science and data and information uh, to it. So those are two, there are other things, but for me, those are two of the biggest 
things that I, I think we have to uh, address. And I'm sure Ralph has even better ones, or maybe he agrees. We'll see. <laughs> what do you think, Ralph? Well, I, I I totally agree with your your the importance of your. Actually, I agree with everything you said, but the importance of your first point, and you know, I speak from uh, from having been there. You know, having run one of the larger healthcare systems at the time, and what I could tell you, you know, just straight up, uh, we developed innovations in care delivery that improved outcomes, saved lives, and actually were less expensive. But we could not do them because we were reimbursed, as Vivian said, based on so-called fee-for-service. You get paid for specific services. You don't get paid for outcome. And if you decrease cost at time in the fee-for-service basis, the savings goes to the insurer rather than the person who's delivering the care. So it was, it was impossible for us to do all the good things we, we could do and wanted to do because we would lose too much money doing it and we couldn't afford then to take care of people who had no insurance. So reimbursement, I say, is number one and it's been with us for a long time. And I think as everybody knows, healthcare is uh, maybe uh, almost one sixth of our, our economy so there's big money and big interest, and it's hard to change. The second is culture. You know, people have had a culture of practicing certain ways and are not easily willing to change the way of practice to be more, more coordinated, practicing in teams, doing things different ways. It's very hard to lead physicians. That's almost it's almost an oxymoron to say leading physicians. Physicians by nature want to be independent and don't want to be led. And then the third thing that Vivian said, I totally um, agree with. We, we may have slightly different uh, perspectives and that is the behavior, the health behavior of people. If you look at some of the worst clinical problems now, type two diabetes and all the uh, effects of that, massive epidemics of obesity, obesity-related uh, illnesses, an individual's behaviors, believe it or not, an individual's personal behaviors are as impactful on their healthcare outcomes as their genetics. And we have yet to be able to develop the capability of enabling people to understand and change their behaviors to be more healthful. So I, I would say those are the three things. Talking about, you know, whatever you, unfortunately, um, you know, I was just in Israel and I had a, I had to get some uh, prescription medication. I was shocked at how little it costs. Um, you know, every country has its <laughs> positives and negatives. But how much does finance play a part in medicine? Do you both feel like it plays too big a part? Should it, pay, should, no, should it, should it be less? And where do you both see it heading? Um, I think that the issue um, of reimbursement, you know, as we said, it, it is the critical issue. From, from my perspective, and Vivian, I, I don't know whether or not you've been able to see this yet. You mentioned... Uh, value-based medicine and, and the importance of a trend to value-based medicine. And this is something that has been the next big thing for the last 20 years. And people say it's been, 
It's the next best thing. And 20 years from now, it'll still be the next best thing. So you could take a, a negative point of view, but I have seen firsthand involved of big entities and big investments to move to value-based care. You might have noticed that Kaiser Permanente and Geisinger had a big amalgamation yesterday. Uh, I've been with uh, uh, people who are uh, very, very heavily funded that have strung together 15 large provider entities and are providing the infrastructure and insurance for them to go into value-based care. So I believe that, I really do believe that given the capabilities and given the fact that uh, companies such as Amazon and Apple and Google are disintermediating classical care delivery in many ways, I do believe that within the next three to five years, there'll be major changes and there will be a rationalization of healthcare delivery, but a lot of it will be related to consumerism, the extraordinary costs that people need to bear, as well as, uh, as, well as employers, and the creation of these prospective models of value-based care. Dave, you raise an interesting question. Each country has its different system, its pros and cons of those different systems. I think in the United States, we have been, uh, we, we want to say we have a private healthcare system, and it's fundamentally a private system, when the truth of the matter is, uh, as Medicaid expanded under the Affordable Care Act, uh, as we age and more people are eligible for Medicare, uh, we have a system that is, you know, definitely dual government and private and increasingly you know government is having to is is playing a bigger role because it's so uh, vital to the national budget um, at this point so I do think um, we are going to have to make some changes but I think these will be fought uh, tooth and nail by vested interests. Um, as this unfolds, and I am, I am with Ralph. I think we are seeing more than just uh, little glimmers. I think we're seeing some flowers blooming um, on the value-based payment side, but um, I don't think we have yet made the full, even close to the full transition uh, that is gonna be needed. And I think the marriage of payment with the marriage of data and insight um, combined with uh, consumers who demand something different is, is potentially the way this unfolds, uh, especially as we have consumers paying for more and more of their healthcare uh, than they ever have in, in the past. But um, I, I think we have a ways to go. I try to be a very positive person always uh, and look at the, the good in everything. And, um, you know, COVID was a tough time for, for everybody, including especially our country, especially those who, who lost loved ones. But what was, the, what was the positive that we can take from COVID? How did that change uh, healthcare in our country for the better? Uh, Ralph and then Vivian? Well, I think um, it's an interesting question. And I think COVID has had a profound impact uh, on healthcare. Number one, 
you know, the good thing is kind of shook it up. You know, say when something is wrong, you should reboot it. Uh, well, we haven't rebooted it, but we, we really did uh, put a lot of stress on the system. I think probably the major difference that it's made now, other than the receptiveness, a little bit more receptiveness to change because uh, COVID did force healthcare systems to change. I think probably the most powerful thing has been telemedicine. Uh, and I say telemedicine because it is taken the focus of care delivery from requiring the patient to come to a brick and mortar center that the care is at. The patient goes, you know, to, to kneels before the physician uh, and comes to comes to Mecca, uh, where now what we've done is bring that to the individual. And very interesting models of care delivery, including some that I'm deeply involved in, uh, in trying to make care more equitable by delivering it through telemedicine, uh, having groups uh, of people with like problems, with social support, all types of things of moving things from the center to the periphery, more in the hands of the individual, actually more cost effective, getting uh, healthcare to be more uh, interested and enabling of using new technologies. I think it also fostered consumerism an awful lot more. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, Apple and Google and the tremendous number of apps, uh, disintermediation of the large healthcare systems by startup primary care entities. A lot of these things were enhanced by COVID. And I say maybe the last thing, uh, Vivian has mentioned a number of times uh, the importance of information technology, uh, artificial intelligence. We're just seeing the very, very tip of the iceberg here. Uh, it, it is so powerful to be able to develop applications that could be delivered directly to individuals where they are that will probably be blended by human intervention as well that will help uh, equalize healthcare delivery, make it less expensive, as long as we could get rid of the obstructions to it. And, you know, here Vivian's the expert, you know, how do we get rid of those obstructions? You know, if, if healthcare were left to do what it could do, it would be fantastic. It's just that its hands are tied by various things that make it difficult to change. So, so let me put an exclamation point on the things that Ralph has raised. I, I share those. Um, the, the other thing I, I think COVID did, uh, and, and I think what Ralph has said about, you know, the virtual medicine, telemedicine, the differences in consumerism, uh, all those are, you know, again, I'm putting an exclamation point on them. I think there's another uh, critically important thing that COVID did that I don't think we know yet how this will unfold. But I think uh, for a long, long time, people thought about healthcare as something separate from the rest of the economy. Sure. And what we discovered is if we have a, if we have a mess in the healthcare world, uh, we are putting our whole country at risk. Uh, we are putting our economy at risk. We're putting our national security at risk. That healthcare is a national security 
and national economic issue. And I think, and, and by the way, it's a world economic issue. It's a world security issue. I don't think we've yet seen what needs to happen to ensure uh, that we are protected going forward, but I think it really raised um, the importance of it in a way that, you know, horribly horrible to say without a pandemic, uh, we may not have seen that. And the other thing I think it did, and I mentioned this earlier, but it really laid bare disparities. We have not corrected those disparities, but you are starting to see far more conversation, far more analysis. The recent analysis that's been done that says basically um, you are more at risk as a black woman, irrespective of your wealth, uh, you can be a rich black woman and you are more at risk uh, for maternal death than if you are a white person in this country. And that's a conversation that we were not having as openly, as fully in our society pre-COVID. And so I think there are some really important insights that we're starting to address that come from our, our COVID time. Um, and, and I'd like to believe it was not just that I got to know my adult children, well, my college age children who landed in my home uh, as adults. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that had its good moments too. Definitely, I think everyone could agree on that. Um, next question is government. So, you know, I think we can all agree that some governments did it well, did COVID well, some go some governments didn't. Um, no one really knew what they were doing, but what is the future of government's relationship with healthcare? Well, I, um, you know, again, I've put an exclamation point on a lot of things that Vivian said. I, I think one of the big changes, which is uh, derivative of uh, what Vivian's point was, is the recognition of the importance of public health. Uh, public health was, uh, you know, kind of uh, on the back burners, uh, not taken for granted. The CDC dwarfed in importance compared to the NIH. Um, and the, the concepts of uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, public health infrastructure, and, you know, if you think uh, of the, all the things that we've learned uh, during uh, COVID, uh, uh, about the marriage of the uh, importance of basic science to create the mRNA vaccine, but then the manufacturing and then the distribution and then the testing um, and then various surveillance things. You know, this all requires a national government effort as it relates to public health. So um, I am hoping, well, I think the awareness is there. Anybody who's been paying attention will understand the need and the need that's important. The trouble is, you know, the, the, the dirty truth is that the, the country is so divided that while the, the two, at least the two of us, the three of us might believe what we really need to do is to have a coherent public health, government supported infrastructure to improve health, you know, say, well, you know, who could disagree with that? You know, I, I, I bet close to 50% of the country disagrees with that. 
So I, I think a lot of these behavioral issues will be incredibly important, but you know we can't you know plan for that as the dominant issue. We need I think we need to plan as rationally as we can and account for that and try to do it in a bipartisan nature, uh, nature but a bipartisan uh, approach to public health would be a tremendous blessing for this country. I couldn't agree with Ralph more. Um, I think uh, we are at great risk of not learning the proper lesson of the importance of this. And if you actually go back and study the uh, the pandemic, uh, you know, in, in the last pandemic, uh, 1918, the Spanish flu, uh, we actually did not learn the needed lessons. Everybody wanted it to be over. That's, and we're doing the same thing again. So I'm actually quite worried that we are not addressing uh, what is needed from our public health infrastructure. So I would say the other thing, in addition to what Ralph said is, we need to have a worldwide uh, approach and collaboration. Quite frankly, had it not been for the Israelis, we might not have had insight into a lot of things that we depended on them for. And, and we should be quite thankful that we were able to depend on them for that. So I think it is both within the US, but I think there is also the need for great uh, global collaboration uh, on these issues. Uh, because as we learn, pandemics do not respect any borders of any cities, any states, any countries. The problem is, I, I agree with you both very much, um, why wasn't COVID a bipartisan you know, issue in our country? It's, it's, it's kind of hard to understand. I, I, I think, you know, I'm an avowed centrist, uh, I think some people on the left maybe went two to the left and maybe some people on the right went two to the right. I mean, how do you, is it is it because of lack of, of leadership in the White House? Maybe that that's really what the White House is supposed to do is bring both sides together. You know, what was, what went wrong in terms of bipartisanship? I remember when September 11th happened, I think that was the last time we saw Congress uh, come out there on the steps and say, we gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta do something together. I think that was like the last time I saw it. I wish I had seen it during COVID, but we did it. So let me comment if I might here. Mike, I'm at the University of Virginia at the Darden School of Business. Um, and my colleagues, some colleagues at the, what's called the Miller Center uh, at the University of Virginia have published in the last week um, a 9-11 type report, although it wasn't commissioned by the federal government. Uh, uh, this was uh, supported in other ways. They have laid out uh, what they believe is some of the things that went wrong. And rather than uh, spend time trying to repeat what they say, I think I would encourage our listeners to go to the uh, Miller Center website and you can read mm -hmm. about uh, what they have to say, um, because they took a very thoughtful, lengthy, systematic look at <clears throat> various things along the way uh, that uh, could have been addressed differently. I do think it is a choice of leadership. It's always a choice of leadership. Um, and then we shouldn't forget that. We can have all the best science in the world, 
but if it is not leadership embraced, uh, leadership brings it together. Right? Yeah, I, um, I mean, what, what I would say, and you know, what I was thinking as uh, uh, we were going over this, as Vivian was talking, I think uh, leadership, you know, th that's what this uh, series is about, leadership. And um, if you say, what is one of the most important aspects of leadership uh, is trust, trust. Uh, you know, I happen to be reading a, a book now called uh, Wisdom of the Bullfrog, uh, written by uh, Admiral McRaven. Uh, if you haven't seen his video, you ought to see it. But Terrific. Yeah, he was, he was a four-star admiral, head of all special forces, Navy SEAL for 30 some odd years. But, um, you know, he has a perspective of, of leadership. An awful lot of it would overlap with, with all of us here. But the number one ingredient, and I couldn't agree more, is trust. You know, one needs to believe that the leader is representing the best interests of the entire entity. And we have not had that. That's been a serious failing in this country. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's really sad. I, I don't know how to correct it. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not in a position to know it better than, than other people. But I think that was one of the biggest failures with COVID was the issue of trust very early on denying certain things. I remember whatever was a boat or a plane or whatever, 23 people positive for COVID not being able to come in the country because the numbers would, would look bad for the government. You know, this kind of nonsense, uh, you know, I know Tony Fauci very well. You know, he grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn as well, about 10 blocks away from me. Uh, and you know, the guy is one of the most trustworthy people in the world. You may disagree with him, but I think it's the issue of trust. Uh, the trust was destroyed for whatever reason by people who were had their own motives, which I don't understand. So we're nearing our end, just getting personal for a second. Um, Ralph and then Vivian, what has been the biggest challenge in your career? How did you overcome it and what could we all learn from it? Well, you know, I think to be successful professionally, I, I'm not sure it, it covers every aspect of life. A lot, a lot of aspects are much more contemplative. Uh, but I think the issue of involvement, engagement, uh, being there, being totally committed uh, is a, a very uh, essential uh, feature of uh, being successful and, uh, and leadership. Uh, you know, I think with myself, I've been very, very fortunate uh, in, in what I've been, uh, in many ways, what I've been given, the opportunities that I've been given. I'm not gonna pretend and say that it's all been dropped out of the, the sky. I think, you know, one needs to be very committed, work very hard, being engaged, be very uh, attentive, and then have a surveillance mechanism of what the opportunities are. And, um, you know, myself uh, being involved uh, in a very, very large healthcare delivery system, there are times that things go wrong and things that go terribly wrong in the delivery of care. Uh, and the issue of safety and various other things, I, you know, I wish I could have been smarter 
in envisioning things that at that time had virtually no attention and, and didn't exist. Uh, but uh, by and large, uh, I think that uh, I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, and the only things that uh, I have not accomplished, my own feeling is I didn't work hard enough to achieve them. So, you know, as I think about this question of challenge, I, I would like to flip it and say, what do I think are the most important ingredients that led to the successes I had? And maybe that's a way of overcoming challenges, but I'd rather think about what were those ingredients that uh, really helped me along the way. And, you know, I would say there's a few. Uh, one is um, very early on in my life, uh, I had a wonderful father who used to say, don't compare yourself to other people you will go crazy. There's always someone smarter, faster, prettier. Pick your adjective. There'll always be someone. The question is not how you compare to others. The question is, are you taking your given talents and doing the best you can with them? And I think it was a very helpful thing because it did make me aspire on the one hand but not see life as a zero sum game. And it, it made me a more collaborative person right out of the gate. I think the second thing um, had to do with um, treating everybody with respect and dignity, and you will get it back fivefold. And I think I was raised and then saw uh, over and over again. And I'm talking about everybody. Um, you know, when you're, I was in the client service world and people have a way of treating only the Ralph Snydermans really well, but not necessarily their assistant or the people who surround them. And I think I learned really early how important it was to treat everyone uh, with respect and dignity. And that's not to say I'm perfect. I'm sure I had my bad days too, but I think that was a second uh, ingredient. And then the third ingredient, you know, is uh, surround yourself with terrific people and then take good care of them because they'll always help you. And I'm, I'm going tomorrow night to a, a, I'll call it a next chapter party. I won't even call it a retirement party for a, a younger man who was absolutely critical to my success. Um, he was better than I was at a lot of things, but I made sure to help him in his career. And I think uh, I would encourage us to think about the things that, uh, you know, and I'm sure they helped me overcome challenges, but I'd, I'd rather focus on the things that I think really propelled me and, and those, you know, and then finally, Ralph's right, you know, nothing's simple, so you better work hard. Last question, what does being Jewish mean to you? And I know everyone answers that question differently. Feel free for any response. Um, so I'd like to start. Um, first of all, I'd like to start it from the standpoint of a Jewish woman. I want to be accepted everywhere. 
Um, I also have two children adopted from St. Petersburg, Russia. I want them accepted everywhere. And the idea that I might not practice at a intense enough level, observant enough level, uh, for me, Judaism, it's very important that Judaism accept us all, uh, especially accept and support and encourage leadership from women. Uh, we are not second-class citizens. We are full citizens and we are full members of the Jewish community and should be treated as such. So in my Judaism, uh, whether it was summer camp, uh, whether it was raising my children with ritual and community, um, it, it meant something to me because I was welcomed and encouraged uh, to be the best I could be uh, as a Jewish woman. I think the other thing, it impacted how I thought about community, the Jewish ethos of charity and service and, and my mention before of treating all with dignity, you know, all who are come, hungry, come and eat, welcoming strangers in a strange land. Th these were all absolutely important to me uh, even if I uh, uh, didn't wear it on my sleeve every day. My, my Judaism, as I said at the very beginning, uh, was uh, heavily derivative, at least early on, uh, of the fact that my parents were uh, both uh, from a shtetl in the Ukraine, uh, when in 1917-1918, uh, Petlura's army came through uh, and created the worst pogroms uh, anywhere, anytime. Uh, my mother's father was killed in front of her eyes. Uh, uh, my father was inducted uh, into the army and had to escape, uh, luckily escape. Uh, I grew up with stories uh, from my father, who was a great storyteller of what it was like being Jewish. Uh, in uh, Pechera of the Ukraine, where even though, you know, for Jews, uh, they did quite well because they were the, uh, the, the horse people for the Graf, you know, so they lived out of the shtetl. But he said that the people there, uh, the non-Jews would always say, you know, you're like the wheat on the land. You're there, but you could be cut down at any time. Uh, and it was a, a difficult environment. And, and, and they came here, and I was raised with two things. Number one, understanding where I came from, you know, where my generation came from, and the idea that life is not always easy or safe. That was one thing. The other, my mother, whose father was a lehrer, was a teacher, uh, always her, her word, if there was any word that she, uh, she said to me is neshama, neshama, you know, the soul, have a soul, uh, be a good, kind person. So for me, being Jewish was, you know, that concept of service and goodness and, and accomplishing things for the good of others, you know, service, but also being always a little bit wary that things might change. Uh, you know, I don't say that with any pride, but I think it was impactful to me to know that number one, even though I graduated at the top of my class from medical school in Brooklyn, 
they never uh, places like Mass General or Peter uh, Brigham and Women's or Corn Cornell never ever took a student from downstate. Uh, the other so. I decided I'm not going to apply to any of those people. They wouldn't take me, and I don't want to give them the satisfaction. So I found two places that really as good as any, but you know, had no restrictions, Duke and Hopkins, and I ended up going to Duke. Uh, so it's it's impacted me to some degree, and I can't say it's all good, uh, but it's made me understand that the environment around me is something I need to pay attention to. As I've gotten older, I have definitely gotten more spiritual. Uh, I really enjoy uh, reading Jonathan Sachs, every Shabbat, the Parsha, uh, lighting candles. My wife lights candles and, you know, we don't, in no way do we fully honor Shabbat, but, you know, we honor Shabbat a hundred times more than I did uh, up until the last 10 years. So the idea of a covenant, which is a commitment over life to a life of trying to do the right thing in service uh, is something that I believe more and more, the spiritual relationship of goodness, of compassion, of neshama, uh, I think, is uh, is an important part of my life, but also the edginess. Edginess, you know. Some people would say I'm not the easiest negotiator, or this or that, or, or or other things. I think some of that relates to the fact that I know that things won't necessarily come easy to me. Amazing. Thank you both so much. We're up to our quick fire round. One minute, really quickly. One word answers. You both ready? No, but I'll go anyway. Favorite movie of all time? I'm embarrassed to say, uh, and most people will never have heard of it, it's Young Frankenstein, which is a Mel Brooks movie. Gene Wilder. You got it. Vivian? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Favorite place to vacation? Hmm. Outer Banks, North Carolina. Ralph? Well, thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I, I love the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Uh, I also love the mountains. You know, that's my Brooklyn accent. Mountains. My my grandchildren grandchildren make fun of me for saying mountains instead of mountains. Uh, of North Carolina is a wonderful place as well. Favorite Jewish holiday? Vivian. Passover. I will say also. I, I'll say Pesach, uh, but uh, it's the same thing. Favorite Jewish food? Tatalakis. Well, if I could get it, my mother's stuffed cabbage. But if I couldn't get that, I'd probably say kishka. I love kishka. And yeah. lastly, that's that. I, I, I love kishka. Last, last question. What is one word you associate with Jewish? I'll, I'll go first. Menschlichkeit. Home. I love it. Ralph and Vivian, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate everybody. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us on Schmooze. Ralph and Vivian, God bless. Really, thank you both so much. Thank you both. I really enjoyed it. Thank Hi, you. I enjoyed it as well. Nice to see you and meet you, Ralph.